So let us hear then the word of our God from 2 Samuel chapter 3, beginning in verse 2. Sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon by Ahinoam the Jezreelitess. His second, Kilav by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. The third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Hagith. The fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithraim, by David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David in Hebron. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Well, as we saw in chapter 2, David, of course, was established as king by God in Hebron. But we also saw that Ishbosheth was established as king by Abner, and this was in Mahanaim on the east side of the Jordan River. So there were two kings in Israel, and so as you might expect, there are problems. But one of them was seeking God, the other was refusing to submit to God's will. And so war resulted, and as we saw in uh, verses Uh, 12 and following to the end of the chapter. Uh, This battle initially by the pool of Gilboa, or excuse me, of uh, Gibeon, and uh, then the subsequent battle as they went across the territory of Benjamin. And uh, through all this, clearly we see that God was with David, and he was uh, against Ishbosheth. Now it's possible that this particular battle was the last of several conflicts that they had, or it was a key example of them. Certainly, this account tells us the backstory to Joab's murderous ways against Abner. The author was very intent on demonstrating Abner's innocence in regard to Asahel. Now, we reflect a little bit on the horrors of war. And we have to, I think, conclude that all war is awful. All war is a consequence of sin. All deaths, as a result, are tragic. And so whether we're talking about the 360 men of Ishbosheth or the 20 men of David, all those deaths should leave us with sorrow and sadness. So whether we're talking about the 1,400 roughly in Israel or the, at this point, unnumbered people who have been killed in Palestine, whether you're talking about those dead in Ukraine or Russia or anywhere else, this is someone that God made, and they're now dead. And so whenever we're talking about war, we need to be cautious that we don't get flippant, you might say, and careless with image bearers. Nevertheless, there are good and evil, right and wrong. The death of a believer is more tragic than an unbeliever. The death of an innocent person is more tragic than someone who has caused the problem. I am more upset at beheaded babies and raped and murdered women than I am over the dead Hamas soldier. A dead soldier of David who obeyed God is, you might say, more tragic than the dead soldier of Ishbosheth who defied God. 
So we have the challenge of trying to hold these ideas in tension together. All of it is death, all of it is sad, all of it is evil, and yet the death of the unrighteous is God's judgment. Well, we come here now to chapter 3. And the focal point here begins with David's success. And really that theme continues, um, frankly, until chapter 11. But we see it here throughout the chapter. Um, In verses 2 to 5, we see it especially here with David and his family. In verses 6 to 21... We see, of course, Ishbosheth's failure, but as a consequence, David's success, and how Abner comes to his side, you might say. And then in verses 22 to the end of the chapter, we see Abner's murder by Joab, <clears throat> but we can think of it like this, too. God used even this to benefit David, and David's response at the end of the chapter is also a successful thing. And so as we uh, turn to this chapter, we we started this theme in the last chapter, uh, but we see it here now uh, as well, David's success. Now, let's begin then in verse 2, and uh, there's actually a lot for us to learn here in this list of names, and so let's try to (coughs) break this down a little bit. (coughs) Verse 2, sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon by Ahinoam the Jezreelitess. All right, now, um, first of all, there is no indication that David ever had any children with Michael. Remember, Michael was his first wife, the daughter of Saul. Uh, If you turn to chapter 6 here, just a moment, uh, this is when David was bringing the ark to Jerusalem. Remember, Michael was not very happy with him and so forth. And in verse 23, at the end of the chapter, it says, Therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Now, that sounds like an absolute statement, doesn't it? It's possible. Maybe it just means from this point on she didn't have any, or she didn't have any with David. Remember, she was given to Palti. Um, It's possible she had children with this man. But the way this verse reads, it sure sounds like she didn't have any. So David's first wife, and he will reclaim her, as we will see going forward, um, didn't have any children. All right, so David doesn't have children at this point. Also, remember David was running from Saul in the wilderness and then eventually in Philistia. And um, David doesn't have any children, the text is indicating to us. And you recall that David's running from Saul was probably no more than 10 years. He was anointed at 15 years of age, kills Goliath roughly 18 years of age. And then he marries Michael. So you figure it's no more than 10 years of running from Saul, maybe as little as three or four or something like that. But for this period of time, David doesn't have any children. It's only when God establishes him in Hebron that he does. Now, do you see an implication here from the text? I think we see that there are times where not having children is permissible by God. Obviously, in Genesis chapter 1, we are told to be fruitful and multiply. This is the norm, the cultural mandate. We should have children. God wants us to do that. 
Now, we can certainly talk about those who can't have children and some of those scenarios, but the text here is suggesting to us that there's a time in our lives where not having children is permissible, even when we're married and can have them. And so um, those who say that we should just leave it all up to God, I think go a bit too far. David waits during this time of running until he is established by God as king. Now, in our family anyway, to use as an example, we waited a few years after marriage until Nathaniel came. And the purpose there was for me to finish seminary and to pay off some of the student loans and so forth. Uh, We also waited in between children because of how difficult it was for Nalene during pregnancy and childbirth. And so we didn't just rush to have another child right away. We waited. And the shortest time in between our children is Nathaniel and Anna, two years and ten months. And it's because we believe the Bible teaches these kinds of things that we should use our sanctified common sense, you might say, on some of these things, and that there's a time and a place to wait. Um, Now, over half of our children came in God's timing, and not ours specifically. But, um, you know, that's all part of God's plan. But now that David is settled here in Hebron, he is ready for children. He is now 30 years of age, and he begins to have children, one right after the other, it seems. And so first, then, we are told that Amnon, the son of Ahinoam, was born. This was his firstborn. Now let's turn back, uh, back a moment to 1 Samuel chapter 25. 1 Samuel chapter 25, and you recall this is the account of Abigail and uh, Nabal and that whole situation. I remember Nabal's being not so kind, David's ready to kill him, and Abigail steps in in her wisdom to stop it all. But at the end of the chapter, you remember these words, verse 42, so Abigail rose in haste and rode on a donkey, attended by five of her maidens, and she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and so both of them were his wives. But Saul had given Michael his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was from Galim. So three wives. And the way this reads here, it sounds like Abigail was married before Ahinoam, uh, back in our passage here in 2 Samuel, maybe it was the other way around. But whatever the case, Amnon was born first. He is the firstborn. So, um, <clears throat> let me say a few words about the children and the wives that at least we can say something about. As for Ahinoam, this is about all we can say. But as for Amnon, we can say a lot more. Let's turn forward to chapter 13, and uh, we will see in more detail, of course, when we get here, that um, Amnon was not a very nice guy. I'll just summarize this for you. But Tamar was Absalom's full sister, and uh, Amnon thought she was good-looking. And he joins up with his cousin to try to trap her. And so they come up with this plan and so forth. And, and uh, in the end, Amnon rapes his half-sister, Tamar. 
Unfortunately, uh, though David was angry, he doesn't do anything about it. And so Absalom takes matters into his own hands and he kills his half-brother because of what happened to his full sister. And so as we look at this list of names of David in, uh, when he has children in, in Hebron, we see that his firstborn turns out to be a total bust. He's a rapist, and then he's murdered. Let's turn back then to um, verse 3 here now in chapter 3. It says his second, um, the Hebrew literally says, Kilav, uh, Chiliab, we might say in English here, uh, by Abigail, the, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. All right, now I just made reference, of course, to Abigail in 1 Samuel chapter 25. She was this beautiful woman. She was this wise woman and so on. Now, let me say a few words then in regard uh, to Kilab, her son. If you turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 3, and I intend to turn back here in a little bit, so stick something here in this passage. In 1 Chronicles chapter 3, and uh, verse 1, it says, Now these were the sons of David who were born to him in Hebron. The firstborn was Amnon the, by Ahinoam the Jezreelitess. The second, Daniel, by Abigail the Carmelitess. Well, how does that work? Well, as I've um, explained on other occasions when we've seen this, most likely the same guy, two different names. Okay. So we have two names, typically, first name and middle name, maybe it was something like that. Maybe he was born with the name Daniel and then later given the name Kelav or the other way around. We don't know for sure. You remember that Daniel means God is my judge. Kelav means like his father. So maybe as he was growing up and so forth, they began to see, hey, he's a lot like daddy. And they gave him a nickname, possibly. We don't know for sure. But what we can say is that he's not mentioned anywhere else. And I think that's a good thing. I'll come back to that here in a bit. Uh, let's come back then to uh, 2 Samuel 3. And uh, the next one also in verse 3. The third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, the king of Geshur. All right. <clears throat> well, there's nothing more for us to learn about Maacah. She's not mentioned anywhere else. Um, but in terms of her relationship here to her father, right, she is the daughter of the king of Geshur. And here's where I want to make a brief reference to the map. Um, and uh, it really doesn't matter on this map that I've been using which side you look at. But uh, if you find Mahanaim along the Jabbok River, uh, east of the Jordan River, remember this is where Ishbosheth was. And then if you find Hebron on the west side, of the Dead Sea. This, of course, is where David was. Now, Geshur, we believe, was north of Mahanaim, maybe as far north as Damascus area. Some say maybe in further north, some say south, but east of the Sea of Kinnereth, the Sea of Galilee, as we know it in the New Testament. But in that general area, we believe is where Geshur was. Now, I'll say more about this in a moment, but do you see that Hebron <coughs> and Geshur now surround Ishbosheth. So the marriage here seems to be political in nature. 
All right, now, as for Absalom, there is a whole bunch for us to talk about in regard to Absalom. Uh, We've already said in chapter 13 that he kills his half-brother for raping his full sister. In chapters 14 to 19, really, um, Absalom, of course, attempts a coup against his father David. So Absalom is uh, not such a nice son. Now, let me pause here and say this. You remember back in 1 Samuel when uh, David was running from Saul and he came to the priests in Nob. Remember, Himelech gave him food and uh, the sword of Goliath and so forth, right? And then remember, uh, Saul finds out about it. And they go down and Saul wants all the priests killed, but no Israelite would do it. But Doeg the Edomite would, and he slaughtered all the king, or uh, excuse me, all the priests. You remember when Saul died, that uh, he asked his armor bearer to put him to death because he, he was going to die, but uh, he wasn't dying immediately, and armor bearer, uh, the armor bearer wouldn't do it. He wouldn't kill the anointed of the Lord. Um, in chapter 1 here in 2 Samuel, we saw this Amalekite coming to David with the story saying, I killed Saul. And he thought David would be happy, and of course David executes him for killing Yahweh's anointed. Remember, he's an Amalekite, a non-Israelite. So you have an Edomite, an Amalekite, killing a bunch of priests, killing the king. And now here you have, can I say, a half-breed that is willing to usurp the king. I'm not sure that is an unrelated point. Here is a half-Israelite being willing to throw his father off the throne. Well, as we know, his head gets caught in the branches. He's killed by Joab, murdered. And so there'll be much to say about Absalom. All right, well, let's look now at verse 4. Next it says, The fourth... Adonijah, the son of Hagith. There is nothing more we see anywhere about Hagith, but we do see more for Adonijah. You remember in 1 Kings chapter 1, especially into chapter 2, that Adonijah tries to take the throne when David was dying. Remember David, of course, um, was on his deathbed. Adonijah comes and he wants to become the next king. And uh, David hears about it, and he says, no, Solomon's to be king, and so on and so forth, right? Remember that Solomon ends up killing Adonijah, his half-brother, and it appears from the text that it was justly done. But do you see what's going on here? Three of the four sons of David, the first four sons of David, are notorious sinners. One's a rapist, another's a murderer, another's a usurper, another is um, at least trying to take advantage of the situation and certainly not willing to submit to God in that. All right, now the next one, the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital. Now there's nothing more anywhere about Abital other than what we see in 1 Chronicles 3. Uh, but as for Shephatiah, it's possible that the same Shephatiah is mentioned after the exile. 
Okay, and uh, the, the list of, of people who return from exile that we see in Ezra, there is a family of Shephatiah and a certain number that return. Is this the same Shephatiah or somebody else? We don't know for sure. But if it is, and the, the, this son of David, his family continued until after the exile, okay, note the contrast with the three of his brothers. Three brothers don't live until they're, whatever, 40 years old. But his family continues for hundreds of years until after the exile. Now, we can't say this definitively, but it certainly is a possibility. We know all about Solomon, of course, uh, but it may be that this line of David continued for a number of years and was blessed in that way. So verse 5 then, the sixth, Jithraim uh, in the Hebrew, um, by David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David in Hebron. Now as for this son and wife, we know nothing more. So there's, there's no suggestions or anything like we have seen even with the last one. So what we see here then, of course, is that David has six sons by six different wives in Hebron. By the time he came to Jerusalem, Amnon would have been six, seven years old, basically Noah's age. Now, if he had several sons, one right after the other, you know, like a couple months in between them or something, maybe several of them were uh, close to that age when he came to Jerusalem. All right, now how should we understand this? I've given you a little bit of a history lesson, you might say. How, how can we put this together? Well, the first thing that, it, that I believe the text is trying to tell us here, and God, of course, through it, is that in 1000 BC, when all of this was taking place, the culture of Israel and surrounding Israel believed that kings should make alliances with other peoples and other nations. And one of the primary ways they did this was by marrying a daughter of the other king or possibly another leader in that country. And so the more political marriages a king had, the more power he had, the greater the king. He was seen as blessed by the gods in the other cultures, right? And, and more powerful. And this then would attract more alliances and thus more power and so on and so forth. So from the perspective of the world, David was very successful in his seven and a half years in Hebron. Look at all these wives, look at all these children, and look at these political alliances. Now let's turn forward a moment to chapter 5. And in verse 13, it says this, David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron. Also more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem, Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhiah, Elishema, Eliadah, Eliphalet. So obviously David's not done here. <laughs> Let's turn back now to 1 Chronicles chapter 3. And um, this says a little bit more for us. So let me read through uh, down to verse 9. 1 Chronicles 3, 1, uh, we've already read. So let me pick up in verse 2. 
The third, <coughs> Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Hagith. The fifth, Shephatai by Abital. The sixth, Yathreon by his wife, Egla. Okay, so that's the same other than the Daniel name. So verse four, these six were born to him in Hebron. There he reigned seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years. And these were born to him in Jerusalem, Shemaiah, Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon, four by Bathsheba, or right, Bathsheba, the daughter of Amiel. Also there were Ibhar, Elishema, Eliphalet, Nogah, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishema, Eliadah, and Eliphalet, nine in all. These are all the sons of David, besides the sons of the concubines, and Tamar, their sister. All right, now, if you have another translation, maybe some of those names are a little bit different and so forth. There's some questions here and so on. But do you see the point? On the one hand, David is being blessed. He has 15 sons by his seven wives that we know of. Maybe he had other wives. Uh, certainly there's Michael, but again, no children. Um, there are the concubines, so, you know. We don't know exactly how many, but it says there are 15 sons here altogether. We know, of course, that Solomon becomes the next king, and he is, from this mindset, blessed a whole lot more than David with his 700 wives and 300 concubines, and who knows how many children. So, um, on the one hand, we are to see that David is blessed by God. Let me say a few words here about um, these alliances. Uh, Abigail and Ahinoam gave alliances for the local people in southern Judah. Remember that Jezreel is not the one in the north. This is the Jezreel that is near Hebron. And, of course, we have Carmel, that which is uh, only um, maybe seven miles away or something like that. So there were some alliances in that way. Um, Remember now, uh, Nabal's family would no longer be against David. Uh, presumably, the other wives had a similar result. It's not just, this is the love of my life, but hey, I'm going to marry this woman because it will help me politically. Certainly, that was true for Michael, being this, the daughter of Saul. Maacah, of course, gave an alliance with the king of Geshur, and so this now gave David this political advantage. He now is surrounding Ishbosheth in this way. And that may very well have been what helped deter Abner away from Ishbosheth. Now we'll see more, there's more to that in the next section. Uh, but maybe this was part of it too, turning him toward David, because he knew he was on the losing side. So on the one hand, we should say, David is blessed. Let's rejoice in this. Let's praise God. God is giving David all of these things. Yahweh is with him. And you know, there will be some people, some commentators and so forth, that will stop with this point. But I don't think we can. I think we also need to see David's sin in this way. In Genesis 2, verse 24, of course, we are told that a man must leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. How can you do that with multiple people? Okay. 
Now, there are times, yes, where there's justified divorce and if your spouse dies and, you know, things like that, yes. But how can you be one flesh with multiple people at the same time? And so Abraham was in the wrong. Jacob was in the wrong. David is in the wrong. Solomon is in the wrong, clearly. And that's just based on God's intentions in Genesis 2. But let's turn also to Deuteronomy chapter 17. And uh, you recall we've read this passage before, uh, especially in regard to um, 1 Samuel chapters 8 through 12. Um, So Deuteronomy 17, beginning in verse 14, God is giving some regulations for the king someday. And um, we see, first of all, that um, he needs to be one that God chooses. Uh, Secondly, he must be not a foreigner, right, an Israelite. Verse 16, don't multiply horses, don't go to Egypt to get all kinds of horses and even chariots and all that. Uh, And then verse 17, neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. And it continues. Supposed to read the law every day and so on and and so forth. Clearly David disobeys his command. It doesn't matter what the world thinks. It doesn't matter that the world says, hey, look, David is blessed. And yes, in a sense, David is blessed. Okay. But David also is sinning, as too, of course, is Solomon. Now, the author obviously does not come right out and tell us this. But we're going to see the same kind of thing in some of the other acts of David. And even some of the things we saw in 1 Samuel, he doesn't come right out and say, well, this is right or this is wrong. Uh, He doesn't do that here. He doesn't say David was sinning. But isn't it interesting that he spends a whole lot of time telling us about Amnon and Absalom and Adonijah. And of course, then the whole situation with Bathsheba. It seems like the author wants us to know the scriptures and know how to apply the scriptures and not necessarily lead us along in every way. We must understand that David was sinning in this way. Maybe temptation is very powerful, but maybe if David had one wife, he would not have been tempted when he saw Bathsheba or at least have been strong enough to say no. But when you have however many wives he ended up having with concubines, and hey, here's another one. <laughs> Maybe all that wouldn't happen. So you remember some of the things we talked about at the end of 1 Samuel. Here it is again. David is a mixed bag. He's a godly man on the one hand. God is blessing him on the one hand. But David is far from perfect. And that is A description of ourselves, too, isn't it? We, too, are mixed bags. On the one hand, David did very good things. He was a man after God's own heart. He waited these 15 years to become king. He doesn't take matters into his own hands and kill Saul. He defeats the Philistines and other enemies. He establishes Jerusalem and Zion, and he helps to prepare for the temple. Lots of good things. Of course, he's the father of the Messiah. And yet he had some serious sins, obviously Bathsheba and Uriah. At the end of the book, we'll see about the census that he took. Uh, He doesn't punish Amnon for his rape 
He doesn't even punish Absalom for murdering Amnon, Joab, others. David does not execute justice. He doesn't do so well with his family. We've seen in 1 Samuel him lying to Achish and the Philistines. As I've already said here tonight, some of David's sons were clearly evil. But David presumably had some good sons too, and not just Solomon. Though, of course, Solomon is a mixed bag too. I'm inclined to think that the sons of David, at least in this list, that we learn nothing more about were probably good kids. Good kids tend not to get the press, right? The bad kids get all the press. And so I'm inclined to think that. And if if Kilab was like his father in the good ways, if Shephatiah's line continued until after the exile, right? So again, our point here is that there's some good things about David. There's some not so good things about David. Our hope is not David. Our hope is the son of David. And certainly not Solomon, but the greater son. And so... I don't want us merely to look forward to Christ here, our our true king. I don't merely want us to to repeat the message of Paul in Romans chapters 1 and 2, that David is just as wretched as the rest of us. That is true. But as we think of our sanctification and seeking to live as the people of God, let's not be content with being can you say, partially obedient. Let us strive to be consistent in our godliness and in our faithfulness. We are all a mixed bag. Let's try to make that mixture much more good than bad. We will never be perfect until glory. But let us seek to strive unto greater and greater righteousness through the power of the Spirit that has been given to us. Let us learn here from David what not to do as well as what to do. Let us seek to obey God's requirements and not just content ourselves with obeying some of them. So, as I said at the beginning, there are actually a number of things for us to learn in this list of names. And here are a few things for us tonight. So, Lord willing, next time we will begin the next part of this. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word you have given to us. We are thankful, Lord, for, in this case, a list of names and uh, the teaching that we glean from them. Uh, We are thankful, Lord, that you do bless us in so many ways, ways that are certainly not deserved because of our sinfulness. We are thankful, Lord, that you... um, Uh, Pour out your blessings upon us, not because of our deserving, but because of Christ and his perfection and his work in our place. Lord, we also um, then ask that you would strengthen us by the spirit you have given. You would enable us then to walk blamelessly before you. As you told Abraham, Lord, help us, strengthen us, enable us not to be... um, so gray, if you will, but to be more white, to be more holy, to be more righteous, not 
in order to earn our salvation, of course, but because you have saved and uh, that we might honor you in it. Um, we are thankful, Lord, that you have granted us your spirit to enable us in this. And so we pray that uh, he would work mightily in us here in these ways. And so we pray this then in Jesus' name.